HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This week on Meet and 3, we bring you stories about how Gen Z is different from their millennial predecessors through the lens of food. My knowledge of alcohol didn't really come from like Bud Light commercials or like Project X. Yeah, and that's my gripe with the platform as well, is that all these DIY videos, cooking videos, they're 20 seconds. What's one food item from your childhood that you wish you could have today? Dunkaroos, because they don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Although, the Dunkaroos Twitter was activated again a year ago, so it's only a matter of time. They've tweeted a couple times, it's pretty hype. Listen to Meet in 3, HRN's food news and storytelling roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Eat Your Heartland Out. I'm back, your host and tour guide, Capri Cafaro. Now, up to this point, we have focused our exploration on the well-established immigrant foodways and their impact on shaping Midwestern cuisines. Today, we are shifting gears to second-wave immigrants, those who have settled in the Midwest more recently. Asian immigrants are part of the second-wave Midwestern migration. There are a variety of ethnicities and subsequent food traditions within this very broad category. So we're going to try to provide a glimpse into some of these individual Asian communities and how each one has enriched the foodways of America's heartland. Our first guest today is Ashley Rose Young, a historian at the Smithsonian Museum of American History's Division of Work and Industry. Dr. Young's research focuses on the intersection of race, ethnicity, and gender in American food culture and economy. Ashley, thank you so very much for joining the show. Thank you so much for having me. What a pleasure. Absolutely. And I have uh, admired the work that you do uh, with the uh, so much in the food program at the Museum of American History uh, at the Smithsonian in D.C. So I'm excited to have you on the show and have you share some of your experiences in research with our listeners. I, I know that you spent some time with the team out in Lincoln, Nebraska, um, obviously in the Midwest, examining the role of immigrant communities and women in particular in both food and entrepreneurship. So what did you learn about Asian immigrants in particular um, who chose to immigrate to the Midwest? 
So I want to provide a little background before diving specifically into some of the community members we spoke with who come from East Asia and Southeast Asia. So to give you an idea of Lincoln, Nebraska, I want to contextualize that in terms of refugee resettlement. Thank you. And That's why we have you on the show. You're, you're here for context. Of course. And so Starting in the 1970s, there were two main resettlement agencies that operated out of Lincoln, Nebraska, you know, agencies like the Catholic Social Services. And in the 1970s, these organizations successfully and officially helped, efficiently rather, helped migrants and refugees from Vietnam to find jobs and find stability in Lincoln, Nebraska, of all places. And the U.S. State Department actually took note of how successful these organizations were in resettling refugees. They took note of the efficiency, but also took note of Lincoln's low cost of living and the relatively uh, a relative abundance of available jobs. So it became an ideal relocation area, and the State Department named it as such, naming it an ideal relocation area for individuals seeking a new life here in the United States. And so through the 70s, 80s, 90s, and through today, Lincoln has actually played a large role in resettlement in the state of Nebraska. In fact, from 1997 to around 2000, more than 80% of all refugees resettled in Nebraska were resettled in Lincoln specifically. Now, if we kind of zoom out a little bit to the state itself, you know, Lincoln is just one city, but Nebraska has had tremendous success in resettling refugees in recent years. In fact, in 2016, Nebraska settled more refugees per capita than any other state in the U.S., according to the Refugee Processing Center, and that's part of the State Department. So all of this comes together to say that the American Midwest, and specifically the state of Nebraska, play a really important role in refugee resettlement. And some of those communities include Yazidi, Syrian, Burmese, Bhutanese, mm -hmm. Afghani, Vietnamese, Bosnian, Mexican, Russian, Ukrainian, Kurdish, Sudanese, Chinese, and, and many more communities. But those are just a few that I can mention now. Sure, and we've we've covered a number of them and uh, their influences on Midwestern foodways throughout the season of this program, uh, and how we're ending up here today is is talking about some of the newer wave uh, immigrants that have come in the last you know thirty forty years up to today. The Asian uh, community being part of that, and and I think the other part of why I wanted to try to tell this story is because. Oftentimes, people dismiss the, the Midwest as very homogeneous. No one would think, or very few would think, that Lincoln, Nebraska, or Nebraska would have a robust, diverse, uh, heterogeneous, ethnic, uh, you know, immigrant population. And as you're telling us, it certainly does, and, and with good reason, and, uh, you know, with uh, some history behind that. And so I, I hope that this is eye-opening to our or ear opening to our listeners. Yes, me too. Ear opening, definitely. Uh, so, um, what specific Asian uh, groups are present in Nebraska specifically that, that you uh, were able to come into contact with during your time there? And maybe, actually, before we get to that, tell us a little bit about what 
brought you to Lincoln, Nebraska. I gave a little bit of a, a preview to that, but maybe just give a little bit more uh, color and texture to uh, the research and work that, that brought you and the team uh, out to Lincoln, Nebraska specifically. Of course. So we started a pilot research program in the summer of 2019, so last year, called Power Through Food, Women Entrepreneurs Saving Communities. And we really want to acknowledge and honor the very important role that women play, especially women who are refugees coming to the United States, hoping to find stability and economic security for their families. We wanted to highlight these pivotal roles that they play um, economically and culturally for their families and broader community, and then also for their networks as they settle into the United States and expand those community networks within the refugee community and beyond, we find that women play such a crucial crucial role, both at home, but also as entrepreneurs in business communities, advocating for either their personal business or helping to find resources and funding for other refugees within their community. So we, like I said, we wanted to highlight that because it's it's so important to this current moment in the United States, but it's a role that women entrepreneurs have played for a very long time. So it's also honoring the histories of women in the past as well. And so we came to Lincoln, Nebraska, because we had um, academic connections uh, to the University of Nebraska, uh, the Lincoln location, and we were able to speak with professors there in community organizations to learn about this very vibrant migrant community. And once we started hearing, you know, stories of these different entrepreneurs, we just felt that we had to go to Lincoln to really um, shed light on on the history of this diverse community and to help break down those stereotypes that you're talking about. You know, the Midwest is not a monolith and it does not have a monolithic culture. And and Lincoln is exemplary of the diversity that's really inherent in many cities uh, in the Midwest nowadays. And so you did ask us about what communities we're working with and specifically- Yeah, specifically with with the Asian communities, as this is the focus of this particular episode, um, you know, I want to hear uh, more, I think, in detail about your, your work in, in Lincoln with uh, Asian, Asian-specific communities. Yes. So I, for in Lincoln, we were able to meet uh, with a family, the Wynn family. Uh, the matriarch being Thuy Nguyen, who migrated as a refugee from Vietnam. So our research specifically with the Asian community within Lincoln honed in on this particular family. It's a multi-generational business story, and it's it's truly inspiring. I mean, Thuy came to the United States when she was 12 years old after fleeing Vietnam. And, you know, shortly thereafter, after resettling in Lincoln, she saved. She was so thrifty. She really lived um, a threadbare life for six years so she could save up money to start her first business, which is Little Saigon Oriental Market. And this is along the 26th Street corridor in Lincoln. And it kind of sits between the two uh, branches of the campus in town. And, And there's so many migrant entrepreneurs who have started businesses here. And Twee has multiple businesses. 
is, you know, as Little Saigon Oriental Market experienced success, she was able to open Bonwich Cafe, probably most loved for its bubble tea. I remember of going course. there and enjoying that so much. And then she also worked with her daughter, Khan, to open up Pho Factory and really showcase the family's, you know, quote unquote, secret recipe for their for their faux broth and it has just become a gem of the community the community really supports and and really respects the entrepreneurship and food culture that the win family ha, you know has started in lincoln right i mean obviously it's not just the vietnamese community that are uh going and shopping at the the Vietnamese market or going to enjoy the food in, in uh, these number of different restaurants that this family has, has opened up. It's sharing those flavors with the greater Lincoln community uh, who obviously are, uh, you know, integrating these new flavors into their daily lives as well. Exactly. And you see that reflected at Little Saigon, the supermarket. You know, they have a diverse array of produce there um, that's popular in East and Southeast Asia, as well as South Asia. And Can you really give me some to... examples? Can you give so, me some examples yeah, of that produce? Yeah, yeah. So uh, my eyes immediately went to the beautiful bitter melon. I love the, the look of bitter melon. But then I also saw and recognized durian, which I... Um, first tried when I was in Singapore. And, you know, I was so excited to see durian, very recognizable by the kind of aroma that a ripe durian admit, emits. Uh, but the market also sold fresh meats and meats and fish that weren't really available in your everyday grocery store. Mm -hmm. For example, they sold goat as well as whole fish rather than having it filleted as you might often see in... Right you know, your kind of everyday supermarket. Store. Yeah, supermarket. Um, but there were also just um, dishes and tea and tea sets and whatnot from different parts of Asia. I think I came away with a few sets of dishes that I happened to need uh, in my kitchen, just smaller plates to put, you know, when I'm doing dinner prep, I like to have a smaller plate and I got a few that had been brought in from China. And so now I think of Lincoln, Nebraska, whenever I'm making dinner. I love so it. It's a, a store of all kinds of, of produce and groceries. It's it's really beautiful. And they have been able to stay open during COVID-19. I'm so happy to report. And so, you know, they're adjusting, always adjusting to the needs of their customers, uh, especially during the time like the pandemic to really meet diverse needs. They're not just catering to a Vietnamese, Vietnamese right. community, as you said. And and that's a, that's a good place for us to um, maybe... Uh, and our conversation is how these communities, at least in your experience in Lincoln, these entrepreneurs, the female entrepreneurs, Asian entrepreneurs in a place like Lincoln, Nebraska, how uh, have they been able to adapt to meet the needs, the tastes, uh, the customs of maybe what had already been in place in uh, in the Midwest, in Nebraska? You know, again, you think about Nebraska and here's a place that has a um, you know, a big Russian ethnic community that had settled there decades and generations before that have left their imprint, for example, on meat pies all across the state. Um, now here's a new wave of, of immigrants with a whole different type of flavor profile. Um, and they have to adapt in some way to the uh, taste that already exists there in Nebraska. So just some parting thoughts on, on what you saw as uh, Asian immigrants uh, and entrepreneurs um, 
adapted to and were sensitive to some of the uh, the tastes and um, preferences of those that are already in Nebraska. I think that's a great observation, and it's something that you know, you don't just see this in Lincoln, Nebraska, or Nebraska in general. These are kinds of trends that you see within these layered migrations and movements over time where um, communities that are already established and those moving in have to adapt to what's available uh, to keep their keep their businesses going. You know, I'm trying to think of a specific example with Twee and her family business. I will say in the Little Saigon market, the diverse array of products that were available was, you know, almost mind boggling. And I, my memory could be doing a disservice to me, but I almost feel like that there was some um, cheese cheeses that are definitely kind of known within the Nebraska area that may have been for sale within uh, Little Saigon Market. So you might see the the kind of adaption there of, of sure. local regional specialties. Um, but, you know, I'm just thinking here also that there's there's something else that I want to mention that as much as there is adaptation to an environment, right, appealing to the customer base that's already there, I do see inherent in Twee's work is her commitment to maintaining her family traditions. Right. You know, when you go to pho factory, you are tasting a pho broth that took eight hours to make from scratch. Mm. That was the broth that her mother made that she remembers from her childhood. And she didn't want to compromise on the quality of that particular um, ingredient, that particular part of this dish. And I think that speaks to the fact that as much as refugees or immigrants can be flexible and adaptable, they can also at the same time preserve parts of their culture and Absolutely. share that with their, you know, next generation, with their community members. And that's equally important too. And it's equally embraced, I would say as yes, well. People, yes. No matter where you come from, what your background is, there are some commonalities. Uh, part of that is food breathes life into tradition uh, and it breathes life into culture. But I also think it's it's one of these things, as you mentioned, eight hours of uh, putting that effort into that broth. People can taste the effort, the generations of love that have gone into making that recipe, continuing that recipe. And there's no way not to appreciate something that has that much um, history behind it uh, and that much tradition uh, in in every spoonful that's i what a wonderful story and now i want to go out to lincoln nebraska everybody i talk to i'm like i'm going there next so i hope my listeners feel the same way i love it i love it <laughs> Do dr ashley rose young from the smithsonian thank you again for joining us and sharing your experiences Our next guest is Yeo Vang, the man behind Union Kitchen in Minneapolis. Union Kitchen is a pop-up restaurant experience that features Hmong culture, stories, rituals, food, and flavors. Yeo is also the man, as I've recently learned, because he was just featured in Bon Appetit magazine. So it is really an honor and pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, thanks, Capri. Uh, I'm really glad to be here. 
Well, we are excited for you to tell our, your story. Um, our listeners, I think, are going to be really interested to hear. So why don't you just um, start off there? You have such an interesting background and experience uh, that I really want you to share with our audience. Um, so tell us, how did you get to the United States? Yeah, so... Um you know, I guess if you know, backtrack it, uh, during the Vietnam War, uh, U.S. couldn't uh, have official boots on the ground. So um, the way that uh, during the war, the way that the best way that U.S. could, the U.S. government could be on the ground is um, using like a proxy army or paramilitary troops. And the Hmong people uh, were a group of people that are uh, indigenous to the area, but they lived in the hills of Laos. So the U.S. government came in um, and said, "Hey, we're going to train you guys. We're going to um, uh, we're going to arm you guys. We're going to pay you guys. Would you fight for us? Uh, you know, fight off um, like um, uh, the Northern Communist Party." Um, so, um, so yeah. So my dad uh, and his brothers, at a young age of 12, 13, they joined up. Um, you know, you kind of call it a, a militia if you want to call it that. Uh, the, the name was a special uh, guerrilla unit, or SGU. And so, yeah, my father fought in the war for the Americans. And one of their main jobs was to um, rescue downed pilots, uh, U.S. pilots uh, that um, went down. Um, that was one of their main jobs. So uh, after the war, there was this kind of handshake deal that was made where he said, hey, if you guys win or lose, um, the the uh the Hmong people you if you fought in the war you can come to America and you can get free citizenship. But after uh everything after the war, uh after the US lost, they pulled out, they left the Hmong people behind. Mm. Um eventually there were refugee camps that were set up in Thailand and my parents made it to one of the refugee camps called V9. Um my mom and dad they met there in seventy seven, seventy eight. I was born in eighty four and then we left the refugee camp in eighty eight and uh we've landed in the Twin Cities. Well, and why the Twin Cities? I mean, first off, before we get into that, uh, your story and the story of your family um, and their involvement and signing up uh, to fight for the Americans without ever being in the United States is just incredible to me. Um, And so you end up in a refugee camp. You end up going from that refugee camp to the United States at, what, four, four or five years old. Why Minneapolis? Yeah, so the Twin Cities area has a huge. Um, it's like a they're they're refugee resettlement nonprofit organizations, and a lot of times they're run through the Lutheran or Methodist churches. And so there was a huge group of them that um, decided, hey, we're going to help sponsor um, these refugees. So the way that the sponsorship program works is that you can you're only you're allowed sponsorship. If you had a family here that vouched for you, guys, mm-hmm. you know, so it's like, it's not like, oh, we can just throw you and you can land and you guys got to figure out what to do next. So the only way that that's way, that's the only way the sponsorship works. So all these Methodist and Lutheran churches work with these nonprofit or uh, these uh, uh, refugee resettlement organizations and said, hey, we, we will take them on. Uh, we will take on. So, so a lot of the first waves in 75, 76 was when the first wave of Hmong refugees came to Twin Cities. And, um, a lot of them actually ended up living out in the burbs with a lot of these, um, you know, Norwegian Swiss families and wow. living in their basements, living in their guest house uh, or uh, guest rooms and stuff like that. So, yeah. 
and talk about you know uh, cultural integration and and living right next to one another. And uh, you know, we had a previous guest on talking about um, Vietnamese and and other. Uh, Asian refugees coming in to Lincoln, Nebraska. Very kind of similar story about refugee resettlement and some of these organizations and, um, you know, this next wave of immigrants, um, being right next to some of the older first wave immigrants in the case of mm-hmm. Minnesota being, you know, uh, these more Scandinavian and Germanic groups, um, down in Nebraska, Russians and others. So, um, what an interesting tapestry as we keep talking about this, how the Midwestern tapestry of culture and food come together like this, um, over, over generations. Um, so tell us a little bit more about the Hmong people specifically, your, your community, um, you know, your flavors just, uh, I don't think a lot of folks maybe are as familiar, um, with the, the Hmong population. Uh, so I'd really like you to give us some insight. Yeah. So the Twin Cities area has the largest, most dense, um, Hmong population in the United States. So in the metro area here in the Twin, in Minneapolis, St. Paul, wow. in the metro area, we have about, um, anywhere from 65 to 70,000 people, Hmong people living here. So it's one of the biggest, um, you know, we, Everyone in the Hmong community, we always joke that uh, St. Paul is like the Hmong capital of the world. <laughs> so when they do big like New Year festivals, big kind of festivals, like a lot of people will fly in here. And so it's kind of like the hub for um, Hmong culture. There's oh, also wow. a big, yeah, there's also a big, um, uh, you know, another pretty large group of um, Hmong people that settled out in, uh, in like, um, the Fresno, Sacramento area. So there, there's another group of people there, uh, but then, uh, lately, a lot of Hmong people have been kind of moving out to more, like, more, like, more of the Midwest farmland areas. So, uh, some, some Arkansas, you know, Little Rock, Arkansas, Tulsa, um, you know, even in, in, in Ohio, there's a small community in Akron. Yeah, you not know, far so, from me. Yeah. So there's, you know, kind of Hmong people, we're, we're agricultural people. So, so we love working farm. We love working the land. Um, the Hmong people, uh, our heritage, our lineage can be traced back to Western China. Um, the, the West, uh, the, the Chinese back in the day, uh, uh, historians and among art, um, anthropologists have learned that back in the day, they would call them, uh, the Miao people. And that word Miao gets, uh, translated to as sons of the soil. It was because oh, wow. of our, 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 um, you know, my great, 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 great grandfathers, our ancestors, they would always work the land. <clears throat> Their whole thing is, Let's work the land. Whatever we're on, we can work the land. And the word sons of the soil was actually a derogatory term, but they, you know, they kind of wore it with pride, you know? And, and I love that. I love that to know where I'm from, to know that, you know, um, that these are like this, this blood that pumps through the vein of my great, great, great grandfather who worked the soil and the land and the hills of China. That's the same blood that pumps through my vein. And so that, that excites me. And I love to that. Me, that's that's the Midwest mentality. Like that's why I love the Midwest. I love the Midwest because we have this kind of like um, never quit attitude. Like people who moved out to the Midwest, it wasn't because there was this thriving metropolis of culture. It was we're gonna go, we're gonna work the land, and that's what I love about the Midwest mentality. And and I love like you know Midwest blue collar. That's my father and my mother in a nutshell. You know, my dad when we first came to America, he. Just, you know, he got a job and he started working. He didn't know much English and he learned enough to get by. 
and he he started you know he was a carpenter and then he went into welding and then he started building homes and he just worked for 35 years right so he well, retired a few years ago and and yeah this is this is so great because you have just hit the nail on the head in my opinion of the story of the midwest um and how different groups in different generational migration patterns can have the, the same type of stories and, and experiences. You're describing your immigrant story, very similar to my family's immigrant story yep. from Italy and the Ukraine, yep. uh, you know, at the turn of the 20th century, probably almost a full hundred years before your family came from a exactly. totally different part of the world, all settled to the Midwest, um, you know, to work for a better opportunity for their family. But what else did we do? Carry those rich cultural traditions with us through food. And I know that's what you're doing um, at, you know, with your work at Union Kitchen. I saw on your website that it says that the aim of Union Kitchen is to marry Midwestern traditions with those from back home in South South and Eastern Asia to bring Hmong flavors to American palates. And I want you to you know, expand upon this. Yeah. What are these Hmong flavors, yeah. and you know how do you adapt them to American palates? So, 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 what I tell people is this: that <clears throat> within Union Hmong Kitchen, what we always say is every dish has a narrative. You follow that dish long enough and close enough, you get to the people behind the food. And once you're there, it's actually not about food; it's about people. That food is a catalyst into cultivating great relationships. So, the Hmong people is we never had. A land of our own. We never had like, you know, like the, the, our country. We never had, we had a flag. We never had an anthem. We, we didn't have any of this. We would, we were indigenous people that would travel that, from place to place. The reason, and when my father told me this, the reason that we always travel from different places to different place is because wherever the good soil is, wherever the good land is, that's where we went. And a lot of times the Hmong people were hated on because they were kind of this outcast group. So we always ended up in the mountains. But being in the mountains, we were able to find ways to um, to, to, to grow um, crops and, and to work on the sides of the hills of the mountains. And so uh, so the Hmong people, wherever we've been, we always glean from the cultures that were around us. We always glean from the people that were around us. And we would take what we learned and then we would um, forge that in, into our culture so that we could build a platform so the next generation could build upon it. Now, when I when, when we talk about the Midwest flavors, for example, here in the Midwest, man, we have harsh winters, you know. Like, yeah, we do. <laughs> what, what's, our, what's, what's, what's our growing season? Maybe four months, five if we're, if, if, if it's a good year, right? So, the rest of the month, a lot of the vegetables that we get to use here in the Midwest are root vegetables. So, we incorporated a lot of root vegetables into our food. We do. We use techniques and flavors from um, from the Hmong culture, but we're using ingredients, produce, and product from this area. You know, so it's like working with great pork, working with great beef, working with, um, you know, with very seasonal vegetables. And again, like I said, we work with a lot of root vegetables. But, but the, the, the one thing is we don't, like for us, we don't sit and say, well, this isn't how our parents cooked in, you know, in Laos or Thailand. Of course it isn't. Cause my mom, my, one of the things my mom has really taught me and what she said to me was, she said, you know, she, well, when we started doing this kind of food, she goes, you know what? If we were here, you know, hundreds of years ago, yeah, we'd be doing the same thing you guys are doing. So being Hmong doesn't mean you're com- confined to a certain kind of food. It's whatever's around you. And I always tell people, I always tell the young cooks who cook with us, especially young Hmong cooks who cook with us. I was telling them, like, you know why this is Hmong food? Because it's made by Hmong hands. Like, it's our food because we made it, you know? And in that, we have this freedom to, to, to have fun, to, to experiment, to do what we want to do. 
And so, you know, I, um, I always go back and, you know, like my mom and I will, will talk recipes all day. You know, like this morning we were just on the phone. I was just you know, talking recipes with her about some of the things that she wants to do. Um, and, and I don't feel like I'm held back. Like I have to use a certain kind of tomato from this region of, you know, Italy or blah, 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 to be considered this dish. I don't, you know, because yeah, that, things- that has to give you a, a tremendous amount of creativity, um, you know, to really make things your own. And as you said, uh, you know, adapt and evolve. Uh, so I, I'm curious to, to know, um, you know, give us some examples. You, uh, you just said you're talking about, um, recipes, you know, all day, all morning with your mom. Does, first of all, do you, does your mom work with you? Is she involved in the kitchen as well? Or is she just, well, she, is she just consultant in chief? <laughs> she is definitely consultant in chief. So, so for example, her hot sauce. So when you talk about Hmong food, there are four elements that's on the table. When you talk about Hmong dinner, you have your protein, you have your rice, you have your vegetable, or sometimes the vegetable is in a broth, a soup, or you, and, and you have your hot sauce. So if all those elements aren't on a table, you're, it's not considered a dinner. Okay. I so see. those, so my mom has a hot sauce she makes, you know, we grew up eating it and I was always like, Ugh, whatever, but it's one of the biggest hits in town. Um, uh, even nationally, it's starting to get some you know, low recognition. Uh, bon Appetit wrote a little thing about it. Of a majority of the recipes we use, uh, and the dishes that we do has, uh, influence from my mom and dad's table. I tell people when I kind of laugh when people come in, they're like, Oh, your food is amazing. And I'm always laughing myself. I'm like, it's really not mine. It's, you know, it's theirs. It's their food. It's their story. I'm just a curator, you know, and that's what's been super cool because when people talk to us about the food we make, I get to tell the story of my mom and dad. I love I get to this. Tell, I get to tell them about their sacrifice they made. You know, my dad fought in this war. He sacrificed everything to get us to this country. You know, my mom, you know, she, she suffered. She went through a lot of pain to make sure that we got here. And then while when we were here, you know, when we we're in America as kids, they worked their tails off to get us through high school to make sure that every one of us went to college. My father said to us, I don't want you guys to have an excuse. I don't want you guys to be like, well, we couldn't go to college because we were poor. This, we were this poor immigrant family. So they worked hard to make sure that we were not without excuse. And, and that's why for me, as I got older, I realized like, wow, like this is what they did. This is what it means to sacrifice. This is what it means to give up everything. And so my parents, they had to set their dreams aside. They, they didn't have the, the idea of dreams. It, it didn't flow in their mind. They set everything inside. They survived. They made it so that we can have a dream. And one of the things I always tell people is when you realize that somebody has given up their life so that you can have life in the full, it changes the way you talk to people. It changes the way you care about people. It changes the way you love people. And for me, it changed the way I cook. So knowing that my mom and dad gave up their life, gave up everything so that I can have life here. It, it changes everything. And so I would be a fool if I didn't tell people about their story. And you tell that story through food. Uh, definitely. And it's their food. It's their story. Again, I'm just a curator. You know, my, my father has influenced me a lot, especially when it comes to grilling. You know, and, and it's not this kind of like, oh, we put some charcoal in there, blah, blah, blah. Like my parents, my dad would start these big fires in the back in our fire pit. And we have these big grill outs and we have family come over and I learned how to grill over wood fire at a young age. Mm-hmm. We would and, get a whole do, And do you oh, still sorry. do, and do you still do that kind of grilling in that, in that manner? 
90% of what we do uh, with our food, uh, you know, right now with, you know, especially with COVID and everything going on, we have a takeout program with Union Monk Kitchen. 90% of our food is off our smoker and our wood fire grill, you know, and, and, and I, and I love that because it's, it's his essence. It's, it's who he is. He's a part of it. Um, you know, my, my, my mom, she, you know, her egg rolls, her steam buns, her hot sauce, it's part of our, it's part of our rotating menu. You know, people get excited about, I think people like her more than they like me. (laughs) (laughs) That's always the case, right? I know, I know. So, um, but yeah, it's, you know, I, their whole life has just been about us. And for me, the rest of my life, I want to be about them, you know? What that, I, I just, uh, I'm so inspired by your story, by how you tell your story, by how you're carrying on these these traditions, by how you're, um, you know, saluting the sacrifices your parents and your family made for for you and your siblings to be here in the United States and to pursue your dreams, um, and and how you're giving back. Um, what's next for you and for the Union Monk Kitchen and for the Monk flavors in the Twin Cities? Yeah. So as we kind of maneuver through this whole uh, pandemic situation right now that currently we're in, um, we we're, uh, we were in plans before all this happened. We were in plans to uh, build out a brick and mortar. So right now we're we're uh, we have a residency out of this big food trailer at a brewery. And we're, we're still able to do takeout food from there. And people have been, the community have been incredible supporting us coming by. So we're, uh, we're kind of getting back to our plans of what's it going to look like to open, a, um, to build out a brick and mortar restaurant. Mm-hmm. And that brick and mortar restaurant, we want to call it V9 because that's the refugee camp I was born in. It was a refugee camp my parents met. They got married. I love it. All of us. Um, it's an homage. I tell people that this restaurant is a love letter to them. Uh, it's an homage to them. And so we're, we're still, we're working on that right now. We're actually tomorrow, I have, I'm meeting with our architect tomorrow. We're going to have to, you know, kind of figure out different, a different way of doing it than we, when we first thought. Sure. Right. Well, you actually have, I think, some benefits there because unlike those that already have their, their spaces, they're having to really figure out new creative, uh, and sometimes impossible ways to try to adapt their spaces to these new dynamics. Um, not to digress here, but you, this could be an advantage for you because you're able to build some of these social distancing, you know, type of, uh, you know, constructs into your new build. Um, being able to think about that rather than retrofit, it might, might actually be very helpful. Yeah. I mean, we are just trying to turn a frown upside down, basically, <laughs> you know, <laughs> when it comes to this whole idea. Yeah. That's what we're trying to do. Well, the, I have no doubt that you will be successful in all of this. You, you know, you come from a story of resilience and triumph, and um, your food, obviously, as you just said, is an homage to to your family and to to all of that. Um, I just love your story. I cannot wait. One of these days, I've never tried um, any kind of Hmong food. Um, I'm going to have to track some down in Akron because it's, you know, basically right in my backyard here in Ohio. But one, one of these days I'm going to get out to the twin cities and I'm going to, um, visit you and, and learn about, um, your food ways and, and how, um, the, the Hmong spices, uh, have, um, integrated themselves into, uh, the twin cities, and and the Midwestern food experience. So yeah, we are going to keep an eye out, out on you because there's no question you're going places. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. Thank you, Capri. Appreciate it. Absolutely. 
This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee, representing 75% of U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry production. With over 100 articles published in health journals stating the vast health benefits of Michigan superfruit, it's best to choose the cherry with more. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry at ChooseCherries.com. Our final guest today is Zin Zin Tung. Zin Zin has been in the United States for about five years, moving first to Colorado and now settling in Indiana. She shares her cooking skills and Burmese recipes on her YouTube channel, Zin Zin's Burmese Kitchen. Zin Zin, thank you for coming on our show. You're welcome. Thank you. Um, so tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, what part of the world did you come from and how did you end up coming to the United States and settling in Indiana? Hi, everyone. My name is Zin and I'm from Myanmar, formerly known as Burma. I have a husband and two children, Indian and Iris, and we currently live in Indiana Police. So we have been here in the United States for about five years. At first, when I came to the United States, I stayed in Denver, Colorado, and then I moved to the Indianapolis. Why did you go to Indianapolis? That's a good question. <laughs> yeah, the Indianapolis is a affordable housing plan. So, um, you know that nowadays Denver is really high housing. So we choose the Indiana police to find a house. And also is a, Indiana police is a good place and a lot of Burmese people live in Indiana police. Right, a lot of Burmese people do live in Indianapolis, something that a lot of people do not are not aware of, which is one of the reasons we're doing this show, to let people know all about the Midwest. Um, so I know that you've been cooking for a very long time. Um, yeah. Tell us about how you started to cook and why you still enjoy cooking today. Since I was young, I have been watching um, my mom cooking in the kitchen and having her. I began diving deeper into cooking myself um, after I left mama at the, at the age of 16 years old, like when I was really, you know, like a teenager and moved away from my mom. It's kind of, you know, side effect of homesickness and missing my mom. So I'm thinking about my mom, homemade style cooking is help me calm down and decrease my loneliness. Yeah, other than I will cook recipe and I learned from her and it went, you know, it it will make me feel happy even when I'm sad or stressed out. Um, After that, cooking began part of my life. And I think a lot of people actually end up cooking recipes that remind them of their family or where they come from when they are homesick. So Zin Zin, you're not alone in that. And I think many of us, uh, you know, we go into the kitchen and we cook uh, in order to bring back that that feeling of of nostalgia and warmth um, and um, ease that homesickness. Um, as as you said, so you've been in um, Indianapolis now for a few years, and yeah. um, 
I know that you also have started your um, own YouTube channel. So um, what are you doing on your YouTube channel and and how are you using YouTube uh, as a way to um, teach people about your culture and um, sharing the uh, way that you cook? Okay. Um, I, I did a YouTube channel, um, you know, actually it's last three weeks ago. Oh wow! <laughs> you already—I've seen the YouTube channel, and you already have a lot of recipes up there already. Um, is is I think is um, I think only thirty three um recipe you know at the YouTube channel. But I do have a Facebook page, which is called "It's Auto Thing My Things in Bami's Cuisine." So then, mostly I cook the Bami's food, of course, because I'm Bami's. <laughs> Well, you know, where people will not see me use many uh, specialized utensils, kind of like kitchen device, measurement utensils. Because, you know, Bami's people measure everything by eye and finger or by mind. So, and also I do set a lamb eater. So I just, I just know if the curry is done by checking again and again. I would say that's the unique things that reflect the culture. Also, regarding the flavor, Mami's cuisine is very good at balancing the flavor. Like we talk about five flavor, sweets, salty, spicy, hot, sour, and bitter. Can you give us some examples of, of how you uh, incorporate those flavors into um, into the dishes that you make that are Burmese dishes? Sure. Um, I will choose the one dishes. This is a really famous in Burma, and which is called Burmese chili salad. That, you know, a lot of country, they use the chili as a tea and in a cooking, but they never use in a chili salad, but only you can find in a Burma, the chili salad. So from the chili, you will get a bitter taste. And then in the chili, we mix with a like five flavor. Uh, we put a rotas peanuts, sesame seed, dry shrimp, and also chili, lime, and tomatoes. And this all goes in a salad? Yes. Wow. So you will get a fine flavor. You will get a like um salty from the dry shrimp, spicy from the chili, sour from the tomato and lime, and sweet from the peanuts and sesame seed. And that that tastes bitter from the chilies. So it's all of the the Burmese flavors that you celebrate in one single salad. So are you able to get these ingredients that you use? Um, maybe the more traditional Burmese ingredients, are you able to get them at um, Burmese or Asian markets in Indianapolis? Because you said that there there is a pretty big Burmese population there in Indiana. Yes, they have a lot of Burmese grocery market in Indianapolis. Most are on the side, south side of Indiana. And also, I um, they're far away. Indiana for a week, they have a lot of Burmese cooking too. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and that, that again is something that I didn't know until I had a chance to talk to you. I had no idea that there was a Burmese population in Indianapolis. Yeah. 
they have a lot of Bami's population and also they have a lot of like Bami's grocery. Um, what I know is like total is like 22 Bami's grocery market in Indianapolis. Wow. That's that is that's pretty sizable. I can't even think in in my area where we have a huge Italian American population, we still don't have 22 Italian groceries here. So that's very very impressive. Um now I know obviously you can go to these Burmese markets and get those ingredients that you need uh for many of the dishes, the traditional dishes that you cook, but have you adapted any of the Burmese recipes? to ingredients that are available in the Midwest? Yes, right. Um, I would like to substitute you like season, seasonal salt as an ingredient instead of using like regular salt. Uh-huh. Salt instead of using fish salt. We're trying instead of using like mustard green, you know, garlic mm-hmm. powder, powder, ginger powder, instead of using fresh onion. Ah. I know that as that's why, you know. Like um nowadays the some people in Bama they use the MSG. Yeah. So I substitute the MSG with the like onion powder in my cooking. So that you know like we can buy the onion powder a lot in here. So I substitute the onion powder instead of MSG. These are uh, there are like various or in ingredients we adapted to Bami's cuisine. Moreover, I don't eat the same. I used to, you know, anymore as a in farmer. I as I started eating like Brian uh basmati rice, which is most available in a midwife. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um so I, I want you to share a story with our listeners, one that you told me before we, we started this interview, and that is about your experience with artichokes. Uh I understand you'd never seen an artichoke um, before you arrived uh, in, in I believe, Indiana specifically. Right. <laughs> so um, before uh, I arrived to Indiana police, um, I live in Denver, Colorado. There I have a life food sharing program for the people. And also that I am I'm a volunteer at the, the food program. Uh-huh. Sort of artichoke, and then they give me the like free artichoke. So, oh my God, what is this? I have never seen that. How do I cook the artichoke? You know, even in Thailand or Malaysia, I have never seen that kind of you know that kind of vegetarian. So it's really you know interesting for me to make a dishes, you know. And then I, I cut the artichoke and I soak in a salt. And then I put a tamarind, tamarind, which is sour, tamarind paste into the artichoke and some onion and make it like sour soup. That's different. That's so, so here's a, here's something. Well, I guess you didn't see it first time in Indiana. You saw it in Colorado, but either way, you, here's a, um, a vegetable you'd never seen, an artichoke introduced to it in the United States and you made something, um, that maybe would have been more traditional to uh, Burmese cooking, a sour soup, but now with uh, this incorporating this artichoke. That's that's awesome. Right. 
And also one thing, like, you know, when I came to the, like, Indianapolis, um, I saw, like, in the Indianapolis corn. Yes. It's really sweet. It's really nice. So I use that corn and I make a corn tempura, Bami-style corn tempura, with a dip in, like, um, tamarind, tamarind and palm sugar sauce. Mm-hmm. It's sweet and sour sauce. It's really delicious. And also, if you want this recipe, you can check on my YouTube channel. I saw this on your YouTube channel, and I definitely want to try it. I love this recipe in particular, Zinzin, because it really does show a, a traditional Midwestern ingredient, corn. It's something that everyone in the Midwest uh, uses. Uh, it's uh, in abundance here. A lot of people think about it. I've talked about corn a million times on the show about how corn, everybody thinks when they think Midwest, they think corn, right? So here yes. you are again, taking this corn and you're putting it into, you're, you're adapting it to, to a more traditional Burmese recipe in a tempura. And then you're doing the different flavors. It sounds like you have the sweet and sour sauce. You have, you know, the, the sweetness of the, of the local corn. Um, and you're bringing all of that together using a, uh, a regional ingredient like corn in a totally different type of cooking like Burmese that many of us have not had a chance, uh, right. to, to be exposed to. That is just great. Yeah. That is so, the one thing about the corn and also like, you know, now now we will have a, like, a lot of appet in midwives. So when I live in Denmark, I have never seen the like appet farm. Uh-huh. So in when I arrived in uh, Indianapolis, I saw the like big appet farm, which is like orchard uh, appet farm. Mm-hmm. So we can get a like green appet. And then you can make a green apple curry. Oh, wow. Yeah, with a shrimp, which is really nice. That sounds fantastic. I yeah. That sounds fantastic. Do, do you have any other plans to uh, make some different recipes with uh, ingredients that you find uh, it locally in Indiana? Yeah, I have a lot of, I'm thinking, like, you know, some are not the, like, seasoning yet. Like, what I said, like, apple is not a seasoning yet. I can make a like you know a curry with a like beef or shrimp like you know spicy taste with the apple, and also yeah. we we can make a like you know um like sweet potato, right? Yeah, sweet potato. We can make a like sweet potato um like sweet potato what I'm um, like putting uh-huh. in that family style. Well, I'm gonna. I'm going to yeah. have to look for these on your YouTube channel. Yes. <laughs> you should look for this because, you know, I have started like last three weeks ago. So I did not up- upload like, too much video yet. So, like, well, one, uh, one time per week, I upload a video. Once a week. Okay. Well, that's good for our listeners to know because I'm sure that there are a lot of, uh, folks in, in our audience that are going to be very curious about learning more about Burmese cooking, uh, learning more about your cooking, Zinzin, and, and learning more about how uh, to use readily available ingredients in the Midwest and incorporating them into these Burmese flavors. Um, I'm looking forward to 
um, visiting that YouTube channel again and um, trying some of these recipes uh, on my own and um, hopefully <laughs> making them work. I don't know. I probably don't have the, the skill level that you do, Zin Zin, but I, you're, you're definitely, um, I think, inspiring many of us to try new things, um, which is the wonderful thing about um, our food in the Midwest. So many different cultures coming together, um, and all of those cultures make up uh, our our community and our table and our tastes in the American Midwest. Uh, Zinzin, thank you for joining our show. Eat Your Heartland Out is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.